Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus, a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Hello, my friends, and welcome back. If you're coming back and if you're new to the show, it's great to have you. Our guest today is Dr. Christina Shenvey. You may remember Christina from episode 10, The Space Between Stimulus and Response, where we dove into acting with agency, amongst other things. And our topic for today's conversation is procrastination. Why do we do it? And what is the path out of habitual procrastination? We get into a lot more stuff, and you can actually check out the outline in the show notes, or you can just let the show play out as it does. And before putting this episode together, right before I discovered that in October of 2020, October of this year, Christina is teaching an online course on taking control of your time and leveling up on your time management skills. She tells me that there's several hours of small group FaceTime with the good Dr. Shenvey herself. We'll link to the course site in the show notes. And if you're interested, it's probably better to sign up sooner than later because there's only 20 slots. So here we go. Our discussion with Dr. Christina Shenvey, starting out with... What does it mean or what does it imply when you say, boy, am I busy? When you've got a lot going on and someone asks you, hey, hey, what's uh, what's happening? Do you ever say, oh, I'm so busy. I'm busy. I'm busy. Super busy. I'm, I'm <laughs> crazy busy, actually. And I ask that because I used to say that. And yes. then I heard, I don't know who it was. I think I may have heard like Tim Ferriss say this time says, you know, when you say that you're busy, you imply that you have no control over your situation or what you're doing. And I feel myself about to say that. Yes. And sometimes I do if I want to just like end a conversation. <laughs> technique. So, okay. So my friends listening out there, if you hear that, that's, that's a signal. But I, I've tried to stop saying it because it really does create this uh, like almost frenetic and whirlwind that you can't control mental state. You're setting yourself up for failure by saying that like, oh, I, I'm busy. I've got more tasks than I can respond to. You're exactly right. And I also have tried to give up saying that for the same reason, because if I am super busy, first of all, that's my fault because I have agency over my time and my schedule. I get to pick exactly what I do with my 24 hours a day and what I say yes to and what I don't. And so if I'm overwhelmed, that's I have no one to blame but myself. So taking ownership of that is actually really helpful and freeing because then I know that, okay, I got myself into this. I'm the one who's going to either get myself out of it or learn some very valuable lessons in the meantime. Well, what do you say? You know, whereas old Dr. Shenby would have said, Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm busy, which means don't bug me. <laughs> but, you know, you've got sometimes, frankly, let's say you have pulled too much onto your plate for a day. And I, I find those days when I'm just kind of stressed and distracted, I've pulled too much in. It's like, there's no way I can finish this all in one day with quality. But when you would have before used busy, how do you reframe that? And what do you, what's the word that you use to others and yourself? To myself, I try to reframe it and think about, look at all the cool things I get to do. When I was a little baby med student or a resident, who would have thought I would have gotten to do all this stuff and write these papers and talk with these people? Isn't this amazing? Isn't this cool? So I try to get myself excited about it and remind myself that this is these are all good things, unless I signed up for something that I hate, in which case 
I've learned a valuable lesson. And I also now need to learn how to gracefully extricate myself from responsibilities that I should not have taken on in the first place. Do you use that feeling as a guidepost to say, if I'm feeling that this is a burden, that, oh, maybe that is something that if it's not 100% mission critical and I can't not do, that I just need to jettison? I do, although I think more about like you said, the big mission. So for example, my kids, they take piano. Do they love practicing piano every day? No. They probably have some negative emotions around practicing piano. But will they be glad that they did in 10 years? Well, I hope so. So it's the same thing. Sometimes when you're writing a paper or doing a project, you hit a stage where it really doesn't feel fun, but you're still going to do it because this is something that's really important to you. So it's not necessarily about my feelings, but about my long-term goals with that project and whether I think I can really create something good. But what do you say to other people when you've got a ton going on, whereas before you would have said busy, what's the phrasing that you use? I try to be honest about how I feel, but I also try to be honestly excited about the things that I'm doing. So I'm doing great. I have a lot of things I'm really excited about that I'm working on. And if people have time, then I'll tell them about it. But often it's that conversation you have when you're walking down the hallway and you have just enough time for one question. You say, hey, how's it going? great, busy. (laughs) So most of the time, it's not a long conversation, but I try to be excited rather than seeing all of this as a burden. I went to med school with this guy named Joe Schneider, who was, I think he was in his 50s during med school. And he he's a pediatrician somewhere, I believe. And he's this very interesting guy. He had had a lot of life experience, obviously. He was in his 50s and we were in our early 20s. (laughs) He was very calm and very respectful. And no matter what was going on, whenever you asked Joe how he's doing, say, how you doing? He would say, fantastic. And I knew sometimes he wasn't because we had just been on call for three nights, you know, and it's never, never easy. I said, why do you do that? Why do you always say that? He said, because I want to believe it. And if I say something else, then that becomes what I'm actually feeling. Now, granted, that's it's kind of a hack, you know, like it was this little life hack, but it relays into what you're saying. You know, if you are passing someone in the hall or you're talking like, oh, hey, how's it going? Fan freakantastic. And, you know, sometimes I could be like, well, you're not being honest with your emotions or whatever. And, I, and, I, and I'm curious, you know, what, like, what do you think about that approach of putting a positive spin on being task saturated versus being just honest with the raw emotion? I think it really depends on who's asking and what the context is. If it's somebody that you're able to sit down and talk with and somebody that you trust, then you can be honest with, hey, I've really taken on a lot of things. I have deadlines. I'm not sure how I'm going to make these deadlines. And you can talk about it or talk about, you know, a lot of times we can get into this. A lot of times our emotions around a task are what make us be unproductive with our work. So you find yourself with 50 different things to do. And then instead of doing them, you're browsing Instagram or Facebook or Netflix or whatever it is. And the more pressure and the busier you are, sometimes the harder it is to resist those other temptations. So it depends who you're talking to. And I think honesty is great when you're with somebody you trust. Other times it's easier to just say, yep, things are great and move on. This ties into something I want to extract this from your brain. You know, like in Harry Potter with the pensive when Dumbledore would pull a pull yes. a memory or a thought out of his brain and he would store it. This is this is what I want from your brain. Because you've mentioned this in previous conversations and I'm so curious as how you approach your scheduling and emails and keeping your stuff together. And I have some vague inklings, but I want to get into the details because this is something where I 
let's just say have a gap in skill <laughs> or, or maybe not the best approach. Scheduling, scheduling. And I, I've heard you say this before, value-based yes. scheduling. And that's, that sounds so weird, like value-based scheduling. What, like, wouldn't I schedule based on just the priority of the things that need to get done? How do you make your schedule based on values? Like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think so often when we think about scheduling and emails and things like that, we get too caught up in the details and the weeds of here's the app you should use. Here's how to make a Gantt chart. Here's how to do project management. When really we need to step back and say, why am I even doing this project? What? Do, why am I even on the sepsis committee? What is this accomplishing? Is this in line with my big values? And that's what I mean by value-based scheduling, is stepping back and saying, these big things, these big projects, these commitments that I'm putting on my schedule, are they in line with my own big values? We've talked before about having a personal value or mission statement, and I think that can help guide us when we're offered opportunities or when we're applying for opportunities to say, is this going to be value consistent or mission consistent for me? Or is this going to actually distract me from one of my other big values, my family or some other project that I'm doing? Which brings up the idea of saying no, right? Like yes. that, is a, yes. that is a great skill and it's hard to do. There's all these self-help books and life hacks and talks and all this, like the power of no. And I don't, I don't even know if that's a book, but it, it sounds like it <laughs> probably not, you is. should write one. <laughs> I know. That sounds, that sounds so lame. I'm sorry if somebody wrote a book with that, with that title. But a lot of that, what you're talking about, value-based scheduling, then means that you need to say no. And the lens that I try to apply to decisions, and it's not always successful, is it's either 100% hell yes, or if it's 99% and lower, the answer is no, unless it's something that like has to be done, like filling out a recredentialing packet or something. Right. That's like Those a 1%. Necessary evils. <laughs> yeah, necessary evils. It's like a uh, unpreferred indifferent or something. Everyone has still Studied indifference. How do you gauge whether you're going to say yes or no? And then how do you say no? Well, what you said reminded me of a great story about Warren Buffett, where he told someone, I think it was his driver, to figure out what you need to focus on, write down everything you're doing, everything you want to do in a prioritized list, and then cross off everything below number six. And not only don't do it, but avoid it like the plague, because those are the things that are going to tempt you and pull you away from your top six focus. Now, top six may even be too many. You can't have, you know, 35 different priorities. You have to have only a few. But picking those top few priorities and then avoiding all the others because they're what's going to sap your time here and there. So that's one way to figure out your, your top values. And then in terms of saying no, it really depends on what stage you're in in your career and what you're doing. At some point, at one point earlier in my career, I really wanted more things to do. I wanted to be on committees. I wanted to have my my voice. I wanted to be at the table. And so at that point in your career, it may be better to say yes to more things until you figured out your niche and until you figured out where you're going to spend your time. In terms of saying no, <laughs> I think there's several techniques. One is the trade. So to say, well, I could say yes to this new thing, but I would have to then give up something else. Or if it's your superior or your chair offering it to you saying, I can do that, but then what other thing that I'm doing would you want me to give up? So you could do a trade. Another way is to suggest somebody else <laughs> to say, 
I don't have the bandwidth to do this, but Rob Orman, man, he's got all this time on his plate and he's really looking for for a a chance to be on the sepsis committee. Now, I'm not saying throw somebody under the bus, but if you know your colleagues and you know somebody who truly is interested in hospital operations, then that might be a really great foothold for them to get in on a really important trajectory for their career. So you could you could swap out. Or you could see if there's support for it, which most often there's not support for your time. But that's another way to at least gain more time is if you can get FTE for that time and then work fewer shifts. The other way is to just flat out say, unfortunately, I don't have the bandwidth to really give this the attention that it would need to do a really good job of it. It's hard to say no, right? Because we want to be liked and we want to say yes, we want to please people and uh, the hard part for me is with getting invited to speak. Mm -hmm. And usually I have to say no way more than I say yes, but it's usually like somebody that I really want to go talk to. What I used to do, and this is so horrible, what I used to do was just let that email sit in my inbox and just kind of, and just look at it. And be like, oh God! And then I'd get a, a hey, uh, just checking in on this. And be like, oh God! Then it was, you know, out of respect for those guys because they're scheduling. I've just got to answer right away. And the answer for somebody I I want to, but I don't have the time now. It's like, hey, call me in a year because I'm interested in this, but I don't have time now, or I don't have the bandwidth for this because, you know, those things just take up so much time to prepare, to mm-hmm. travel, to rehearse. I mean, it's just a, so it's a big energy vortex. It doesn't feel good writing those emails, but just being fully honest that it's flattering to be invited to do something like that. Like, Hey, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate that. I've got too much on my plate right now to speak of this engagement or whatever, being honest, but not being a jerk about it. Because I think that, that that could be a thing like, nope, you can say, nope, sorry, has been really powerful. That's like, okay, you need to say no because you need to respect your own time and space and respect them at the same time. Yeah, I agree. Please don't let that email languish. As somebody who asks people <laughs> for things to speak, et cetera, just a quick response is always better. I think we can also use different frameworks for our mission or our values for what we say yes to, thinking about, is this something that is a service that is important to me? Is this where I want to give a service to teach this group? Or is this something that I can learn from? So say they're inviting you to speak to an audience that's bigger than anyone that you've spoken to before. Well, that's a really good stretch opportunity for you. So you'll learn something from it. Or is there some way that this will have potential future benefit or future synergy that then will be worth the the input? The other thing that I, I don't say this to other people, but I say it in my head is rather than saying, I don't have time, I say, I've chosen not to make time for this. Now, I don't email that to people because it'll feel cocky, but because that puts the ownership of my time back on my plate in my circle. So I had a, a friend who is a surgeon and she would always show up for residency, for fellowship with her hair and her makeup all done. And somebody asked her one time, how do you have time to do your hair and makeup as a busy fellow? And she said, I don't have time. I make time. Now, that's just a silly example, but I love that concept that it's not that all these things are happening to me and I just don't have time. I've chosen what I want to do with my time and I've chosen not to make time for whatever it is. That's like the refrain of, 
I don't have a minute to meditate and think, okay, if you don't have a minute to meditate, then you need 30 minutes to meditate, <laughs> right? It's kind of, it's like, you know, you think you don't have this in your schedule, which means that you need actually need to make more space for it. We were talking in the beginning about value-based scheduling, which is such an interesting thing because so much scheduling is thought of as, as, as you're saying, like this structure, that app or this, oh, you gotta, you gotta do this. You gotta, you know, put it in a day planner. No, no, no. You gotta put it in iCal. And I wonder if from a larger idea of time connecting these two things, if there's a better way to think about managing time, that's akin to, you know, what, what you're talking about, that your schedule should actually be based on your values. And so maybe your time should be as well. Yeah, I think one way to think about it is when we look at the big picture and what we're doing and what big projects we're taking on, that should be very much guided by our values. And then when we look at our time in a smaller scale and what we're doing with our time, how effective we are at accomplishing those projects, et cetera, our time management actually has a lot to do with not managing our time and managing our apps, but managing our emotions. Let me let me make a little case for that. Oh man. <laughs> Cuz I know I, you're like wait a second, I wanted apps. I wanted, you know, Microsoft projects, Teams. I don't want emotions. I feel like we're <laughs> pulling out the crystals and, you know, and the herbal tea and what's happening here. But hold up, oh, hold up. So, I'll I'll give you some evidence. But Okay. There's a great article in the New York Times last year about procrastination. So, so raise your hand, Rob Orman, if you procrastinate sometimes. Okay. I have an envelope on my desk for recredentialing. And I just got my fourth warning <laughs> from the hospital with with the head of recredentialing saying, hey, I'm worried about you. Are you okay? <laughs> so you're like expert level credentialing where they're about to send the police for a well check to your house because you have not responded. I know. And it, yeah. And, it, and and I said, oh, yeah, you know, I've, I've had all this other stuff going on. And yeah. You've been crazy like, busy. <laughs> Did you tell them you're crazy busy? <laughs> no, I, I said, I actually, I said, my attention has been focused on um, COVID education. And it, and I will fully admit that it has been not been focused on the <laughs> packet that is sitting on my desk. And I take full responsibility well, for, what, for the circumstances. Well, this is perfect. So this article about procrastination was really fascinating. So here's some quotes from it. See if these resonate. People engage in this irrational cycle of chronic procrastination because of an inability to manage negative moods around a task. They say procrastination is self-harm, or I'll use the term self-sabotage. And then we must realize that at its core, procrastination is about emotions, not productivity. Isn't that so counterintuitive? Yes. But I think about the things that I am and my gut really don't want to do, and they're not my 100% hell yes. They're going to the bottom of the pile and the pile on top of them only gets bigger. Yeah. And you're thinking about this credentialing packet. What negative emotions are you avoiding by not doing it? The kind of the whole process of feeling like there's so much wasted time and effort in these things. It's like, oh my God, this could be so much more efficient. This is still on paper. Yes. I have got to, I've got to pull out, you know, my 
what board certification, my license, I got to make photocopies of this, I got to mail this person, that person, like every time we got to do this. Yes. It's just So look at all those negative emotions. And I'm going to honestly tell you, it's like, do I even want to be credentialed at that mm. hospital anyway? <laughs> I, don't, I mean, yes, there, I'm going to say that there were not many positive emotions ar- mm-hmm. around it. I mean, there's kind of the thing like, okay, well, they're going to be credentialed, not place, but yeah, it's, it's mostly negative. So no wonder you haven't wanted to do it. Just that paperwork. You, I'm sure you've had time or you could have made time. Maybe you could have not read a book or not watched a movie and done it. But there's all these negative emotions that you're avoiding. Yeah. So during that time, my wife and I watched the entire first season of <laughs> The Morning Show on Apple TV+. Plus. We were watching the entire Harry Potter thing with the kids So your night. statement to them that, oh, I haven't had time. I've been <laughs> focusing on COVID education is just a flat out lie, pretty much. I, I I say it was framing my answer in a way that was more comfortable <laughs> that was socially rather than, expensive, rather socially than acceptable. Rather than I am uh, prioritizing TV at night with my yeah. family over now. Out this of course, you know that's not the end of the world. You can probably still get it done. But when we're constantly procrastinating with things that are actually important or that we need to do to keep our job, then it becomes very maladaptive. If this becomes a pattern of behavior, and. Fortunately, there's actually some interesting data and research on how to not procrastinate or how to not self-sabotage. And if I can introduce this and frame it in the context of self-worth theory, and this comes from a lot of the educational psychology literature from studying students and which students work hard and which ones perform well or don't. And it's really fascinating, and I think you'll relate to it a lot. The idea is that our self-worth is something that we must protect. As humans, it's incredibly important to our to our ego, to our sense of self, that we protect our self-worth. So we will do lots of things to protect our self-worth. In Western society, we get a sense of self-worth from our abilities. We say, okay, I have this ability that gives me my self-worth. Maybe it's I'm a good doctor. Maybe it's I'm a smart person. Maybe it's I'm a hard worker. But the only way to really show our abilities is through our performance. So we have those innate abilities, we put in some effort, and that leads to a performance, and that determines our self-worth. That's kind of the basic abilities goes to performance, goes to self-worth. That's the basic model. But now what if we're worried that we're going to fail at something? Well, that failure will threaten our self-worth. So what do we do? What does a smart person do if they're at risk of failing? They sever the tie between their abilities and their performance so that then the poor performance won't truly reflect on their abilities. And the way that we do that is through self-worth protection strategies. It's so common, it has its own acronym, SWP, so self-worth protection strategies. And those come in two flavors. One is self-sabotage and one is defensive pessimism. So with self-sabotage, those are all the things like procrastinating, withholding effort, not really giving it our best shot, or having ready excuses. There's some really fascinating data about how much shame we feel in different circumstances. So say, imagine you're back in you know, high school or college, and you've got some exam that's coming up, and you studied so hard, and you put in a lot of effort, but then you didn't do well or you failed. You feel a ton of shame, just really high levels of shame and incompetency because of that. If you put in a lot of effort, but you have excuses at the ready, so things like, well, I studied this part of the material, but really the exam focused on a different part, so you have those ready excuses, then you feel less shame. If you don't put in a lot of effort, then you feel even less shame. And then if you put in low effort and you have excuses, you feel the least shame. 
So we don't do these things because we're stupid. We do them because we're smart and because we're trying to protect our self-worth. I hear that. And I think that that applies to some things. But let, let, uh, let's get back to that credentialing packet that now weighs like 50,000 pounds on my, <laughs> on my desk behind me. When I think about the activation energy that is required to do that, it feels like a lot. And it's almost that the the consequence becomes so great that it, it, it forces that activation energy. Whereas if it's, I'm going to go out on a walk with my wife, the activation energy for that is zero because I, oh, I love it. It's, it's super fun. So how do I take that thing that has a lot of negative emotions attached to it? I never thought of like a recredentialing packet as having emotions, <laughs> but now that you say it, it does. But it, I think it's a great example. You know, you can apply it to so many yeah. things that or taxes, taxes or, you know, how do I, you know, structure things so that I can develop that activation energy to get to the finished product? Because it is something that needs to be done. Well, I mean, I guess it doesn't. I mean, I guess you can choose not term. to. Yeah, I could. I, yeah, very, you know well, what? I think Maybe that's I that's great. Let's look into that activation barrier and kind of peer inside it and dissect it and say, what is inside that activation barrier? Now, for certain projects, it may be a fear of failure, right? You can't fail if you don't try. You can't fail if you don't start. So for some things, it's a fear of failing, probably less so for your uh, credentialing packet. For other big projects, What's in that activation barrier may be more the self-worth preservation. You want to protect your self-worth so you don't start on the project till the day before it's due. And then, hey, if you succeed, you're smarter than you thought. It's kind of a double-edged sword because if you succeed, you're smarter than you thought. And if you fail, you can write it off and say, well, I didn't study till the night before. or I didn't really put in my best effort. So it's not a big deal that that paper got rejected. But then the third, which I think probably applies here, the third reason we have a big activation barrier is avoidance of negative emotion. So we talked about what are those negative emotions that you have around a task. And, you know, for me doing taxes, all of a sudden when it's tax season, I want to go clean my attic, right? <laughs> like you'll do anything to avoid doing those darn taxes. And and I think about, well, what are the negative emotions that I'm avoiding? Well, maybe boredom, maybe frustration, like why is it so freaking complicated or sometimes thinking about doing my taxes, I'm like, what if I make a mistake? What if I get audited? What if I go to jail? And so just the act of sitting down to do my taxes, now I'm like, I'm in jail. My kids are motherless, you know? So there's all these thoughts and negative emotions that go on. So what can we do? Well, first, noticing, as always, awareness is the first step and noticing what is is going on in our minds and what those negative emotions are that we're, we're trying to avoid. Now, for the credentialing packet, it's probably not actually that hard. But for other projects, instead of focusing on our abilities, focusing on the effort, we know that effort is much more important than abilities. So if you're having some big project and you're avoiding it because you're worried that what if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not a good enough speaker? What if I'm not a good enough writer? Then focusing instead on the effort rather than on the abilities. And then trying to decouple your self-worth from the process. So What's some bigger project, bigger than credentialing, some bigger project that you have going on? Until Essentials of Emergency Medicine got canceled this year, it was mm -hmm. preparing to host Essentials of Emergency Medicine. That is, it's like a year long thing, but in the three months before it, it is so much highly intensive focused work. I don't procrastinate any of it. I get a lot of joy from it. It's exhausting, but there's definitely stress involved because some things will go well, some things you don't know. 
how they're going to go. And there, and there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of people working on it. And I'm the kind of like the face of all of these other people's efforts. So that definitely causes some anxiety. And I can imagine maybe not procrastinating, but having to deal with potential negative emotions when you sit down to do that task. Maybe anxiety that, oh, what if this sucks? Or what if people don't like it? Or what if something really bad happens? Or what if I get up on stage and I embarrass myself? Or what if other people don't do their jobs and that reflects poorly on me? So there's always a lot of emotions around a task that we need to recognize in order to not procrastinate or to not withhold effort in those sorts of situations. The other thing that can be helpful is to look at, going back to big values, look at how this work aligns with your big values and mission. So something as silly as credentialing, well, one of my values is to be a good doctor and to keep my job and to provide for my family. And to do that, I have to do my credentialing packet every year. So all of a sudden, this menial task that requires very little cognitive effort is really aligned with my big values, which is keeping my job. You were saying before on focus on effort and not performance. And and I can see in some ways how that relates to the idea of, you know, you have only so much control over these things, right? You have mm-hmm. control over the work you put in, but you do have control over how you perform, not, not in how people perceive you and not necessarily in the result. Like if it's a race or if it's a talk, I mean, you, you have control over how you want it to go. So don't you also focus on how you will perform through your effort? Yes. I think the idea though is rather than reflecting your performance back onto your self-worth, reflecting it back onto your effort. So if something doesn't go well or it does go well, rather than saying, oh, that didn't go well, I have no abilities, I have no self-worth, taking more adaptive thought patterns such as how do I need to change my effort either the effort level or the kind of effort or the way I did something? How do I need to change my effort in order to have a different outcome next time? You have convinced me that there's a <laughs> lot of self-sabotage that goes on and you just, you're just unaware. It's kind of background noise and you don't, you don't hear the hiss. So if you could say, all right, here's your four nuggets to think about You know, when you're doing something or you have a negative emotion about something or about a task to not self-sabotage so that you can get stuff done, even stuff you might not want to, or even stuff that's, that, that you're scared of, how do you not do it? We've already talked about first having an awareness of what is going on, because you're right. It's so ingrained. We think it's just part of our personality. We say, well, I'm just a procrastinator. Or I'm just disorganized. No, you're actually using those strategies to protect your self-worth. Some of the things that can help in addition to looking at how the work aligns with your big values, one is cultivating curiosity. So thinking about why am I running from this? Why am I avoiding this? And just allowing your curiosity to be like a little puppy and just run around all over the lawn of your mind and just sniff everything out. Like what is going on that's making me want to avoid this project or this activity? Another thing that can help is making temptations inconvenient. So whatever a temptation is for you, whether that's Netflix, I don't know if you can unplug, but unplug the Netflix. Or for me, I remember one time I was working on a PowerPoint and I was feeling very nervous that this audience was not going to like the talk. 
It was an audience of very disparate people, and I'd never given this talk before. It was a little touchy-feely. It wasn't the hard science stuff. And I kept finding myself standing in front of the open pantry door, grabbing the peanuts. I don't know why (laughs) peanuts were just what I was procrastinating with. And so every five minutes, I'm getting peanuts, and I'm not sitting down and working on my project. So I got a stool and put the peanuts way high up where I couldn't reach them and made them inconvenient so that that was enough of a change that I stopped getting up and approaching my peanut temptation. (laughs) So being curious about what's going on and why we're procrastinating or why we're avoiding a task, making temptations inconvenient. And then the third tip would be asking what is the immediate next step? If we go back to that analogy of the activation barrier, say you have a paper to write. Well, there's a huge activation barrier for that for me. I mean, that's so much work to do to sit down and write that paper. But if I say, okay, what's the immediate next step? Or actually, let me back up. If I first cultivate curiosity and say, what is keeping me from wanting to sit down and write this paper? Well, I can explore all those emotions. I have fear of boredom, that it's going to be boring. Maybe I have insecurity that I'll write this paper and it'll never get accepted or self-doubt. I'll write this paper. I'll do all this work. It'll get accepted and everyone will hate it. Anxiety. There's all these emotions that are in there that I need to acknowledge in order to sit down and do that task. Then I can make my temptations inconvenient, but then I can ask, what is the immediate next step? I can take that enormous activation barrier and break it down. Okay, the first step is I need to turn on my computer and pull up my data. The next step is I need to make an outline and decide what section to work on. I can do that. So taking it and breaking it down into little steps that on their own are insignificant and very doable can then remove a lot of the emotional latency that we've piled on to that activation barrier. I have a friend who is an airway instructor. Rich Levitan, he does a, like a course in, in Baltimore. And he and I talk about micro steps. That's all his thing for everything. Mm. He breaks, whatever he does, he breaks down into micro steps. And he says, you know, you think about intubation and you've got some obese guy who's got low oxygen and he's in a lot of distress. And you go, oh, it's this guy. Like, you, you think of the whole picture. Yeah, all kind those of, emotions. You know, cr- <laughs> that's kind of crap your pants. And he says, all right, forget about that. Here's your first step. You got to hold that laryngoscope and you hold it gently. You hold that gently like you're holding a wine glass. I mean, you haven't even done anything yet. Okay. So you're holding that. Now look at the mouth. I don't know if these are his exact steps, but I'm just thinking about how he's walking me through the best. You look at the mouth. Now you take your other hand, your other hand, you got, yeah, what? you got two gloves on it. Now you're going to scissor the mouth open. Like that's your next step. Now, the only thing that exists now is you're going to slide the blade of that laryngoscope into the mouth. And the only thing you're going to do now is you're going to see the tongue. That's it. Rather than, mm-hmm. oh yeah. And, and so just as you say, right. the task itself, especially in a critical situation that is time sensitive, and somebody might actually die if you don't do it well, is to just come back, come back to the micro step, anchor yourself on what comes next. Because what comes next isn't, all right, I want to put them on the ventilator at this setting and give these drugs. You know, you need to prepare for that in advance and all the team's got to be ready. But for you to come back and be in control of the situation, micro step, micro step. I love that. That's a great example because it's an exact situation of when there's so much emotion in there that it can get in the way of doing what we need to do. You think about when people have to do crikes, 
the biggest problem is waiting too long before you actually do it because there's all those emotions, that fear, what if I mess it up? What if I do it and I shouldn't have? What if I don't do it and I should have? And just breaking it down into what will I do for this crike? I will take my left hand and hold the thyroid cartilage. And then I will take my right hand and make an incision in this manner. And it's so powerful. Okay. Have you, I know your kids are older than mine, but have you seen the movie Frozen 2? I haven't seen Frozen. In its oh. com- I've seen parts of Frozen, but I haven't seen it. So the well, answer is a hard no, but most people have. I know <laughs> my, my buddy Swami sings me Frozen songs from time oh, to time. Oh, they're great. So, <laughs> so Frozen 2 is really good. Frozen 1 was also good. You kind of have to see the first one to understand and see the second one. But one of the refrains and the songs from that movie is great. It's The refrain is, do the next right thing. So it's in a time when the character is just overwhelmed with grief and sorrow and loss and fear. And the way that she climbs literally out of the pit that she's in is by taking one step at a time and saying, do the next right thing. And I think that's so great and so powerful. Okay, and now my final tip with that little frozen segue is to plan to fail. This is another really powerful way to reframe our thinking. I don't know if you've ever read any of Brene Brown's books, but she's written some great books on leadership and vulnerability and authenticity. And one of her quotes is, if you have no tolerance for failure, you will not create anything new. So what would you say, Rob, if I came up to you and I was like, you know, Rob, I am the world's best doctor. Just call me WBD (laughs) because I have never sent a negative flu swab. Every single flu swab I send is positive. And what's more, every single x-ray I send has a broken bone. What would you say? You're missing a lot of stuff, doctor. I'm missing a lot of stuff. I'm not doing enough tests. I'm not sending enough swabs. So what would you say if I said, you know, I'm so amazing. Everything I do, I succeed at. I would say that your effort is suboptimal. My effort is suboptimal. I'm not trying enough difficult things. If I'm succeeding at everything I'm doing, then I'm not trying anything that's hard for me. I'm not trying anything that stretches me. Because if I were, then I would be failing. So we can reframe failure as something that we not aim to fail, but something that we have a tolerance for. And that's what the Brene Brown quote was getting at. We have to have a certain amount of tolerance for failure in order to succeed. So I think about it in this way. If I am always in my comfort zone, I'm always succeeding, then that's a bad thing. So I need to plan to, say, have two failures a month. Now, I don't mean an epic failure or a patient safety failure or a failure because you didn't try or you didn't show up. But I mean allowing yourself to have some things that you fail at because that's how you know that you're really living in your zone where you're growing and expanding and learning. And also that takes away that fear of failure that was part of the activation barrier. If you have a tolerance for failure, then that lowers the activation barrier to all these things that you're doing or not doing because you're afraid of failure. This is a little bit off the flow of where we are, but taking all of these things, especially procrastination, how you approach email. And I, you know, I hear all these things like, oh, the zero inbox, or I only do one touch on email. Every couple of weeks, I'll kind of tear through all of them. Like when things do come up, I'll get the ones that are super critical, but I will let things sit for a while and fester. I will fester. I, they'll fester. <laughs> I will sometimes look at emails more than once, you know, it's not like a one touch thing. And I'll say that in like oftentimes, my response to an email is, I'm sorry for the delayed response. I should probably just have a macro for that <laughs> on, on Gmail. I check my email regularly 
you know, I've heard all these people like, ah, oh, here's how you do your zero inbox. I've never been able to enact it or at least have it stick. So I can tell you what works for me. First of all, I view most email as kind of a necessary evil or at least shallow work. Most email is shallow work. I don't know if you've ever read the book Deep Work by Cal Newport. Fantastic book. Changed my life. Yeah, yeah. So the goal is to really maximize the amount of deep work that we do. So things like really thinking deeply about a problem, writing a paper, preparing a talk, planning a symposium, etc. And so the goal of being efficient and productive about your email is to make it quick and organized so that you can spend more time doing deep work. Because otherwise, what happens if you don't have a good email management system is it just takes up all your time. And like you said, you touch these emails, you look at them, then you flag them for later, and then you come back to it, and then you still don't deal with it. So my approach is to try to keep the inbox pretty small, under two dozen, say. And what's in my inbox is what I actively have to do. It's my to-do list. I, I do try to subscribe to the getting things done approach, which is the do, delegate, defer, decline, and then I added delete. So the the five Ds. So if something, if you're doing your email, you if it will take less than two minutes, you do it. Just do whatever they're asking you to do. If you can delegate it to anyone else, delegate that work. If it's something that you need to spend more time on, then you need to defer it. So for example, if somebody sends me an email saying, hey, would you mind writing me a letter of recommendation for this job. I can write back very quickly and say, sure, no problem. Send me the info. Then if they send me the form that I have to write a thoughtful letter about, well, that's going to take me more than two minutes. So that's no longer shallow work. That's deep work. So then I would flag that for to do later during my deep work time because that'll take you know 20 minutes or so. So do delegate, defer, decline. This is where we get back to that value-based scheduling. If somebody asks you to do something, but it's not in line with your big values, then declining it, and then finally deleting. As much as you can, delete it, only touch it once. So my system is to get through my inbox that way, and then things that I need to save, I categorize in folders. So for example, this is oh, this is life-changing. I have folders for future travel, because I travel quite a bit now, and for each, well, not right now, because it's the time of COVID, but before that, <laughs> I was traveling. And so I had a folder for future travel and then a subfolder for each of the trips that I was going to go on. So I would have it sorted by 2020-04-30, visit Rochester. I was supposed to go to Rochester to give grand rounds. And then in that folder, I can put their invitation saying the time they want me to be there. I can put my flight, I can put my hotel and any other information so that then when I'm planning to get ready for the trip, I can go look and say, okay, when's my flight again? When's my hotel? Instead of searching your email for, you know, Rochester Marriott or shoot, was I at the Hilton and searching through to try to find your flights? It's all in one place. So making folders for your different projects, that's just my travel. For projects, I have my undergraduate medical education and then different projects in there, graduate medical education, different projects in there. So anything that I need to save each paper that I'm working on, I have a folder for, so all my drafts and folders can go in there. That is life-changing. When you defer, a letter of recommendation is a great thing or a credentialing packet or whatever. Yes, let's do this, and I'm going to do it on X date. Do you then 
block that out in your calendar that like, these will be the 20 minutes I do this. And then as far as the deferred email, do you keep that in your inbox? I mean, there, I know there's different programs for this that can, you know, put it away and bring it back. Do you delete it or do you put it in a file and know that it's there for reference? Like what, what's your technique for the specific defer? Yeah. The main thing about whatever system you use is you have to trust it because if you don't trust it, and know that you have that information in a retrievable place, then it won't work. So for me, if it's something I know I can do in the next day or two, I flag it and leave it in my inbox. And that flag tells me I've already looked at this email and I will address it later. Then when I look at my calendar, I can put in a block of time for my deep work and say, okay, during this deep work block, I'm going to write that letter of recommendation and review this paper. So I put it on my calendar so that I know when I'm going to do it. Another way to do it would be to make a folder for your deep work projects, so your deep work that you need to do, and just put it in that to-do folder. And then block off just deep work time on your calendar and then go see what things you need to do. That's what works for me. What I like about this method is that before having an organized inbox, I just felt out of control. And like I would lose emails or I would read it on my phone, but then have to mark it as unread so that I knew to go back and look at it again. So like you, I was looking at emails over and over again. This way I can look at my inbox. I see four or five flagged emails. That means I need to reply to or do something that will take more than two minutes with those emails. Otherwise, I know I've addressed everything. So it builds a certain level of trust with yourself and also with other people because they know that you're going to reliably address things. Now, I know, Rob, you're looking at me and you're like, but Christina, I have 10,000 emails in my inbox right now, right? No, like 30. I recently <laughs> did a, pur a purge and a, re and a response. Okay. Well, a common question I get is, well, what do I do with the existing 7,000 emails in my inbox? So here's the magical trick that I was taught because you can't go through them all and do delegate defer at this point. It's just meaningless. So you make another folder called inbox prior to today's date, and that's a subfolder in your inbox, and you move everything into that. So go through maybe your top 50 most recent emails to make sure you don't lose anything, but move everything else into that folder. So you still have it, it's not gone, you can still search it, but now you have a clean inbox. And now you can start implementing your system to either categorize, do, delegate, defer, et cetera, your emails. I mean, like going back through those 7,000, or do you think, hey, if something's really important in there, they'll email me again? Well, probably a lot of those are from 2016 and are just not even relevant, but you don't want to go through and sort them. So I would just go through the most recent 50. If there's things that you know that are in there that are important, sure, save them and or keep them in your inbox and do them. But anything past the top 50, you weren't going to get to anyway. So just put them in the inbox prior to today's date. <laughs> now, I find Gmail a little bit harder and more unwieldy to manage with folders, but I use the online Outlook, and that's very simple to use. How often do you check your email, and then how do you do it? Do you check it on your phone? Do you only check on your laptop? Do you have a schedule time to do it? Do you like set out a block of time? If I'm going into my office, then I try to have a block of time that's my shallow work time when I do all my emails and all those other paperwork tasks, submitting reimbursements and things like that. Otherwise, I'm honestly pretty bad about checking it too often and checking it on my phone. But I do have the same system. So on my phone, I'll quickly delete everything I can delete. I'll forward and delegate what I can delegate. So I have the same system, but I do tend to check it probably more often than I should. 
taking a step back and we've talked about time and scheduling and now email. I mean, not all of this is time. It's efficiency. It's having a specific strategy to deal with these things. What have you noticed affects these activities directly? And then what about downstream? What have, what have been the ripples? The biggest goal of all this is not to have a perfect inbox. It's not to have a bunch of little folders where all my emails are. It's to free me up to be strategic about how I spend my time and to really focus on the things that are important to me, to implement the projects that I think are really important or to do the deep work that I am really passionate about. My goal is to be really efficient with all these other things so that I can free up more time to do the strategic and important projects that are aligned with my big values. Those bagpipes can mean only one thing, that we are about to wrap it up. Thank you, Dr. Christina Shenvey. Well, I'll tell you, I always feel a level up after our conversations. You can check out complete show notes, videos, much more at our website, stimuluspodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on pretty much any podcatcher out there. You can, of course, listen on the website. But if you feel so inclined to listen on your mobile, you can listen on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and so on. And if you happen to subscribe on iTunes... Throw down a rating. Helps keep the ship afloat and the wind in the sails. Until next time, don't be good. Be great. Every day. <laughs>